Father, we just, uh, as we come today again uh, and look at this mysterious char character named Melchizedek, Lord, uh, just, we, we want to know who he is. And, and I think your word shows us very clearly, especially, especially the text that we're looking at today, just who he is. And Lord, we don't want to know just who he is because, uh, Lord, we, we want to be uh, theological scholars. We want to know that, Lord, because we want to enter into a closer relationship with him. Because we know that he's our advocate, our great advocate. That uh, this Melchizedek, Lord, is none other than Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, I just ask you to, to just teach us these truths, Lord, but, but in a way that we can apply them to our lives and, and uh, to whatever you've called us to do. And so, Lord, we just ask that you bless this study today by the power of your Holy Spirit. And I ask that in the name of Jesus, amen. If you looked at your bulletins, you'll see that the title of our message today is Our Personal Advocate. Um, what's a personal advocate? Well, a personal advocate is somebody who takes up the cause of another. If you're a parent, from time to time, I'm sure you've been a personal advocate for your child. I remember one time, this is Nathan's last Sunday here for a while, so I'm going to use him as an example again. Uh, but I remember one time getting a call from his elementary school and the principal called me and said, we're about to suspend your son. Uh, he hit one of his buddies over the head with a drumstick. <laughs> and we want you to come down and, and maybe you can talk us out of suspending him. So I went down to the principal's office and it was a new principal, a very liberal principal. And, and uh, you know, I immediately said, well, you know, boys will be boys. Well, she didn't like that. She didn't like that at all. She said, well, I can see... She says, what kind of movies do y'all watch? I mean, do y'all watch violent movies? And, and, I mean, she really drilled me. And she, she said, well, I said, yeah, we watch, you know, we like uh, Born Identity and stuff like that. I mean, we, we do watch those kind of movies sometimes. And she said, well, well, I can see where he gets his violence. <laughs> and uh, anyway, I'm said to listen to this lady for an hour and plead Nathan's case and convince her that he wasn't a future mass murderer <laughs> and that I wasn't a violent man by nature, even though I wanted to strangle her and Nathan before that conference was over with. But anyway, I got him out of trouble and he wasn't suspended and there he is now. Look at him. But we have all sorts of personal advocates, don't we? People that, that take up our cause. Doctors take up your cause. Uh, if you're in business, you have agents that take up your cause. Supposedly, our congressmen represent us and take up our cause before our government. And, and, and so there's all sorts of uh, uh, personal advocates, but probably the best example of a personal advocate that we have in our society are lawyers. Now, if you're a lawyer here, I'm not picking on you. I mean, we love lawyers. I, I really believe a few lawyers will make it into heaven. <laughs> and there, in our society, there are all, we got lots of lawyers, don't we? And there are all sorts of lawyers. We've got uh, contract lawyers and criminal lawyers and personal injury lawyers. I mean, if you haven't lived in Louisiana long if you don't know the name Morris Bart. I mean, everybody knows the name Morris Bart. Why well, Morris Bart? Because Morris Bart, he wants to be your personal advocate. If you have an accident, he wants to, he wants to take that case because he loves you. <laughs> Not really. Because there's a lot of money to be made in suing people. And he's done very well. And I'm not picking on Morris Bart, but uh, uh, there's a lot of lawyers like that uh, uh, in this world today. 
Now, lawyers have become important in our society because many people rely on them to take up their cause. That's, just the, that's, that's who a lot of people rely on. Kind of reminds me of the joke I once heard. He said, what's the difference between God and a lawyer? Well, God doesn't think he's a lawyer. That's the difference. I mean, for a lot of people, lawyers do take the place of God. But that's, that's a shame. Because we have, as we're going to see today in this text, as Christians, if you're a Christian, we have an infinitely greater personal advocate than any lawyer or any doctor or even any parent. We have Jesus Christ, our great high priest, our uh, high priest forever. And like a lawyer, he goes into the courtroom of God and he pleads our case before God. And in this world, he pleads our case before men and the devil. He takes ours back. That's another way of putting it. He's, he's like a loving parent and he takes our cause in every uh, adverse situation that we face. Well, let's get back to where we were at in the book of Hebrews, and we're going to look at this guy, Melchizedek. But let's kind of set the setting again. Remember how the author had told us when we finished up last time, I talk, you talk about a great truth there in verse number 19. We're in, we're in chapter 7 today, but if you look back at chapter 6 in verse number 19, you see this great truth right here that our advocate has anchored our soul in the very presence of God behind the veil. I mean, can it get any better than that? If you're a born-again believer, do you know where you're anchored? You're anchored behind the veil in the very presence of God, in the holiest of holies. Now, how can he do that? Because that veil, what, what did that veil represent? In the, Old Testament, in the Old Testament tabernacle, in the Old Testament temple, what did that veil represent? It represented separation between God and man. In other words, you couldn't get in to see God. But when Jesus died on that cross, the moment he said it is, it is finished, that veil was ripped in two, and we were given full access into the very presence of God. And God doesn't want us just to come there occasionally. He's anchored us in that position in the very presence of God in the holiest of holies. So look back at the last verse that, he's, that he gives us in verse number 20 or the last thing he says in chapter 6. He says, where the forerunner has entered for us. Who's the forerunner? Jesus Christ. Having become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, who in the world is this Melchizedek? I mean, what does it mean to be a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek? Well, here's what I want you to see. And if you've been following this, you've, you, you've got a little bit of an understanding of where we're at. Remember, the author of Hebrews talked about Melchizedek in chapter number 5. And then he broke off for a couple of chapters. He digressed. Now he's coming back to Melchizedek. Why did he drop off? Do you remember why he dropped off? He dropped off to give a warning, to give us a warning. And what was that warning? What was the warning? To not become dull of hearing. When he started talking about Melchizedek, he said, man, this is hard stuff. This is hard to explain. It's hard to apply to your life. And many have become dull of hearing. Some have become so dull of hearing that they really don't care about the word of God. 
it really is of no interest to them. And then he gives that warning, hey, you, if that's the situation you're in, you might very well be like a, like, like a dog who returns to his vomit or a sow who returns to his sty, pig's sty. You might not really be born again. And that's why he gave that warning. And now he's given that warning. He comes back to this story of Melchizedek. Because this is meat. This stuff is very important to you is what he's trying to say. And if you have no interest in it, then there's probably a spiritual problem that you have because, man, if you have an interest in anything, if you're a born-again believer, it's in Jesus Christ, and he is Melchizedek, as we're going to see. Well, there's all sorts of theories about who this guy is. Uh, Hebrew tradition says that Melchizedek was Shem. You remember Shem? Who was Shem? It was Noah's son. And, and most Hebrew scholars over the years have identified Melchizedek as Shem. And that would make sense, except for one thing, and we'll look at that in just a minute. But you look at Shem, he, was, he would have been 600 years old at the time uh, of this incident where Melchizedek met Abraham. And uh, he was a very important man. Uh, he, he, I mean, he was important because he was the son of Noah. That's pretty important, isn't it? But he also, if you look through the line of David and, and, and Jesus Christ himself, it comes through the line of Shem. So he's a very important man, very important man. And so, uh, man, I, if I didn't know what I knew in the New Testament, if I was just looking at the Old Testament, then I might very well think that Shem would be a good prospect for this character of Melchizedek. But we have insight in the New Testament that we don't get in the Old Testament. Look with me at verse number 3. And this is what rules Shem out. Without father, without mother, without genealogy. Well, that rules Shem out right away because we know Shem's father, don't we? His father's Noah. We know he has a genealogy. It's the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And so right away, now the Hebrews didn't have the New Testament. So they still, some of them still believe it's Shem. But we know better than that because of what we're given here in the book of Hebrews. Well, the cults have all sorts of views about who this guy Shem is. A lot, uh, some cults will say that he was an angel. A lot of the cults believe that he was an alien who came down in a spaceship. <laughs> this is, the people really believe that came down in a spaceship and landed on that battle scene and came to Abraham and blessed Abraham. And the more and more we see this new age uh, theology become prominent in our society, the more and more we're going to see uh, aliens intermingled with theology. But we know, I mean, obviously you guys laughed and you should laugh. I'm not even going to get into, you know, try to defend that belief because we know that's not true. Well, ev evangelical Christians have two views about who uh, Melchizedek is. They have the wrong view and they have the right view. Let me tell you the wrong view first. The wrong view is that Melchizedek is a type of Jesus Christ. That he's not really Jesus Christ, he's just a type of Jesus Christ. And, and there's a lot of evangelical scholars who fall into that camp. That's who they identify Melchizedek as, as just a type. He was just a forerunner of Jesus Christ. Now here's the problem with that. Go back to verse number 3. In verse number 3 it says he's without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. That means he's always lived, and he will never die. 
and he has existed without father and mother for eternity, before the earth was even created. Now, do you understand what you're saying about Melchizedek in that case? Who are you saying he is? He is God. Only God can fit that billing. Now, if Melchizedek is not Jesus Christ, we have a fourth person of the Trinity. No way. The Trinity is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So there's only one person this man can be, and that is none other than Jesus Christ. Now, wait a minute. Didn't Jesus Christ have a genealogy? Not when he met Abraham. He had not yet been born when he had met Abraham. Now, he had been born in eternity, but he had not been born on earth. I mean, in eternity, there's no time. And so, you know, you got to expand your thought process here a little bit, and it's mind-blowing. But Jesus Christ has always lived forever. For, I mean, has always lived. His goings forth are from everlasting, Micah says when he prophesies about him. He says, out of Bethlehem will come one who will be rule of the nations. And his goings forth are, for, for, are from everlasting. Now, he's going to be born in Bethlehem, but his goings forth are from everlasting. So he's always existed. Now, here's the other thing that I see right there. What's his name? It, it's king of righteousness, king of peace. And there's only one person who can who can be the king of righteousness and the king of peace, and that's none other than Jesus Christ who is the king of kings. So, so, so we know it's Jesus Christ, and I gave you a preview there, but we'll figure it out again. So go with me to chapter number 7, and let's pick up at verse number 1. Now remember, if I see you yawning, and this stuff bores you, I'm going to worry about your soul. Because you've become dull of hearing. So you better act excited whether you're excited or not. I mean, if, if there's not a lot of hallelujahs and amen in here, you're in trouble. Whether, you, whether you're bored stiff by the way I preach this, you better act excited. Oh, yeah, there we go. There we go. There we go. Now, I did a black, I did a black funeral Monday. And uh, y'all need to go learn from these people. That, yeah, that was a little taste of it right there. But, but so here we... Jerry, right? <laughs> now Jerry's excited. <laughs> All right. For this Melchizedek, Melk. Remember I told you back in chapter 5, Melk is the Hebrew word for king. Zedek is the Greek transliteration of the word kesed, the king of righteousness. He's the king of righteousness, the king of shalom. That, the, Salem is the transliteration for shalom. So, so he's the king of righteousness, he's the king of peace. For this Melchizedek, the king of righteousness, the king of peace, priest of the Most High, God who met with Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. He blessed him. Now, we know from Scripture that the greater always blesses the lesser. That's the way it is in, in, in Scripture. So we know that Melchizedek is much greater 
than Abraham. And that's what he's trying to teach these Hebrews, these Jews who thought Abraham and Moses were right on par with Jesus Christ. He's much greater than, than uh, uh, this Melchizedek is much greater than Abraham. And so he blessed Abraham. Now, how did he bless Abraham? Well, let me tell you the story a little bit. It, it, I'm not going to go through the details like we did in, when we were in chapter 5, but, but here's what happened. Uh, Lot got captured by a group of kings, and I'm going to give you the short version. And Abraham and his 300 servants went out, and they, they defeated the kings and slaughtered the kings, and they had this great victory. And they, they, they gained all of these great spoils from the war, and they uh, came, were coming back from, the, from this victory, and Melchizedek met them, uh, this king of peace, this king of uh, righteousness. And he met them, and he blessed him. Now, how did he bless him? Back in Genesis 14, we're told how he blessed him. He gave him bread and wine, got him drunk. No, I don't know if he did that. But he gave him bread and wine. That's one of the ways he blessed him. The other ways he, he blessed him, he spoke a blessing over him. He, he, he spoke a wonderful, beautiful blessing. You can go back and read that in chapter number 14. But let me tell you the way I believe he blessed him the most. You want to know how? A lot of amens here. There, y'all getting good. By his very presence. I mean, Abraham, this great man of God, was in the very presence of God. God in the flesh. You want to talk about a blessing. You let Jesus walk through those doors right now and, and come take over here and sit me down, you would be blessed. Be, none of us would be bored at that point. I can tell you that right. He would be glowing in all of his glory. One day you're going to see Jesus Christ like that. That's not him coming through the door right now. That's Chris. I promise you. Chris, you can figure that out later. Then maybe you'll learn to sit through the whole service. You're missing the best part. Now let somebody's phone go off. By the way, my phone went off Wednesday night. I want y'all to know it does happen. To, it happens to the. It happens to. Oh, y'all ready? Come on now. <laughs> what a crew, man. Where were we? He blessed him. Now it's going to really get tough here now, guys. So get get ready. To whom also Abraham gave a tenth part. Of all, amen. <laughs> David, I don't know if the box is big enough today. <laughs> Who also, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, of all he had, of all the, the spoils of war. First being translated, now watch what he does here. He says, first being translated king of righteousness and then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace. Do you understand what he's doing right there? He's making real sure that you understand the meaning of these titles that are given to Melchizedek. Because those titles aren't just nicknames given on a whim. These names have meaning. They tell you who he is. Those are the two big clues. He's the king of peace and he's the king of righteousness. Who else can that be? Where do we get our peace and where do we get our righteousness? From the king of kings. And so we know this is the king of kings. And so he says, he says, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of, of all first being translated king of 
righteousness, and then king of Salem, meaning king of peace. So we know that Jesus is our righteousness, and he is our peace. And you know what Abraham knew? He knew that he was in the presence of the king of kings. You don't get in the presence of king, the king of kings and not know you're in the presence of the king of kings. Amen. You go through and look at all, of, and this is a pre-incarnate appearance, what we call a theophany of Jesus Christ. I mean, this is a pre-incarnate appearance. We see these over and over again in the Old Testament, and there's not one of them where people who didn't see Jesus Christ didn't recognize that he was God, and they wanted to make sacrifices. And I don't know so much that he was glowing or anything like that. You just knew when you were in his presence that you were in the presence of God. And, and so Abraham knew he was in the presence of God, and so what did he do? He gave him one-tenth of all the spoil. What do we call that? The tithe. Why did he give it to him? Because he knew that the victory that he had had over those kings, he didn't get, have in his own strength he, or in the strength of his servants, that that victory was, came from the Lord. Uh, he knew that he was in the presence of God. And so this was an expression of gratitude on Abraham's part. And that's really what all giving is. It's an expression of gratitude. That's what giving's all about. Abraham gave a tithe because he was grateful. Now, here's what I want you to do. I want you to do two things right here. I want you to slowly turn your Bibles over to 2 Corinthians chapter 9. And at the same time, I want you to grab your wallet and your purse and hang on to it as tight as you can. Because we're going to talk about money and giving a little bit here. Now, seriously, at Calvary Chapel, we don't take up an offering. We don't do topical sermons on giving. We don't, we don't, I think the only time we've ever got up here to ask for money or talked about money was one time, and that was when we bought this building. And, and so we do, we, when we come to it in the text, we need to address it. We're not going to dodge it. It's just like anything else. We want to look at it. Because we need to understand uh, uh, why we give. I mean, what's the purpose in our giving? I mean, here's what I want you to see about Abraham. Again, turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Yeah, I'm having a tough time here finding it. Here's what I want you to see about giving, and, and we're going to tie these two passages together. But, but was Abraham under law, first of all? Was Abraham under the dispensation of law? The law wasn't given to 500 years after Abraham left this earth, so no, Abraham was not under law. He didn't give this tithe because he had to. He didn't give this tithe because he was obligated to give this tithe. He gave this tithe because he wanted to. I mean, that's why he did He gave it out of gratitude. Now let me ask you a question. Are you under law? No, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness for those who believe. You're not under law. And so our giving should be like Abraham's giving. It should be, it's not something we do because we're obligated to do it. We do it because we know Jesus Christ. And we're grateful for his presence in our life. And we're grateful for his provision in our life. I mean, look at verse number, look at verse number 16 
of chapter 9. He says, but I say this, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So let each one gives as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver, not someone who gives out of obligation. Listen, if you're going to give out of obligation, don't give. I mean, give, but you should. But, yeah, we need you to give. I don't want to turn anybody off to giving. No, seriously, if, you, if you're giving out of obligation, you shouldn't be giving. I mean, God loves a cheerful giver, and God is able to... Now, watch what he says in verse 8. And God is able to make all grace abound to you that you always having all sufficiency in all things may have an abundance for every good work. Why does God bless you when you give? So you can bless others. And if he can trust you and see that you're using what you're getting to bless others, he's going to give you a lot more. So see the principle that he's given us right here? He, he's, he's not saying here, man, you need to give so you can get. No, he's saying we give cheerfully out of gratitude because of God's provision and because of God's presence in our life. You know what? I don't know what any of you give, but if I was to take the offering rolls that David keeps books for you guys for tax purposes and I was to look at what you give, I could tell you how close you're living in the presence of God because the natural response to living in the presence of God is gratitude. And how do we express our gratitude? By saying, Jesus, I love you? Well, maybe so, but those are just words. We express our gratitude by how we what we give back to God in our time and in our money. And if we don't give him anything back, I don't believe we're living in the very presence of God. I understand some people aren't able to give. But you know what? I know a lot of people who who live with holes in their pockets because they live self-centeredly. They don't give to the cause of the Lord. I told you you had to hang on to your wallets here because it was going to get tough. I mean, if you live selfishly and you don't recognize the presence of the Lord in your life, and I'm talking about with your time and with your money, I mean, you're not going to be blessed by the Lord. It's not going to happen. I'm talking about spiritual blessings and material blessings. It's not going to happen. You might be the richest person in the world, but you're not going to be blessed with it. I mean, I didn't say that. God said that. Look at verse 16. But I say this. He who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And so, you, if you want to, you don't give to get. You get from the Lord because you give. You give from a grateful heart. You're not obligated to give anything. You're not obligated to give 10%. Some churches say, man, you give 10%. Some churches, they want to look at your tax return, and they want to make sure you're giving 10%. If you don't give 10%, you can't be a member of that church. I know all of you guys would make the bill, so I don't have to check. But... That's, that's, not the, that's not the way it should be. I mean, we, when, we, when you give to the Lord, when you put that offering in that box, 
You're saying, Lord, I love you, and I really think you can kind of determine how much you love the Lord by how much you put in the box, how much time you give in ministry, how much time in ministry. I don't mean being a pastor or being a worship leader. I'm talking about in serving other people. That's how we say, Lord, man, I, I am grateful for your presence. So there you go. You can put your wallets back in and, and let go now. We're done. Now go with me to chapter number three. I mean, chapter number seven, back to chapter number seven, Hebrews, verse number three. And he describes this guy, again, we've already looked at this, without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days or end of life. It can only be Jesus. But now here's where the issue comes. But made like the Son of God. Doesn't say made into the Son of God. Made like the Son of God. First of all, was Jesus made in eternity? No, he's existed forever. He's not a creation. Jesus is not a creation. Jesus is God. He's lived forever. The second, second person of the Trinity. I don't even like that term, but he's, Jesus is God forever. He's always been God. He emptied himself of his glory and came a babe in Bethlehem, but before that he had his glory, and after that he returned back to his glory. So he is always God. So that, that term, if you translate it, the way it's given in the New King James and in the King James, it causes some problems. But that's really not what that phrase means. It, let me give it to you literally. It means he appeared to look like the Son of God. When he appeared, he looked like the Son of God. Why did he look like the Son of God? Because he is the Son of God. You see that phrase, that same phrase over and over again in the Old Testament. When someone saw Jesus, they said, oh, he appeared like, to look like the Son of God. Remember Daniel when he sees Jesus reincarnate? He says he looked like the Son of God. Well, you know why he looked like the Son of God? Because he is the Son of God. Remains, and he, and he remains, he is the priest of God. There's only one the priest of God. He remains a priest continually. He's been a priest forever. Who's been a priest forever? Jesus Christ has been a priest forever. He's our personal advocate because he gives us his peace and he gives us his righteousness. Now, here's, here's what I want you to see. Here's what's happening right here. And this is important. Why are we looking at this guy, Melchizedek? What's so important about this? Well, Paul, or the author of Hebrews, if you don't think it's Paul, he was writing to a group of Hebrews who couldn't give up temple worship. They just couldn't let it go. And the most important people to them were the Levites who ministered the sacrifices. Because they could see them, they could touch them, and they were important to them. Well, what the author of Hebrews is trying to teach them is that there is no need for those priests any longer to minister the sacrifices. One much greater has come on the scene. His name is Jesus Christ, the same one who appeared to Abraham, this Melchizedek, long time before this dispensation of the law. The dispensation of the law came 500 years after this incident in Genesis chapter 14. Now, does that have application to us? Yes, it has application to us. I mean, especially to certain denominations where they lift up the clergy, what I call the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, where they lift up the clergy above the people, as if somehow these people are right there next to God. Y'all know me well enough to know I'm nowhere near God. Amen, Amen. I knew I'd get some of that. Right? <laughs> what about chap? 
nobody's even close to being as great as Jesus Christ. He is infinitely greater than Abraham. He's infinitely greater than any priest or pastor or the Pope or whoever. He is infinitely greater than any of those people. That's what he's trying to show these people, and that's what he's trying to show you. The one you put your faith in is God. The one who died on the cross for you is God. You can't top that. And so he makes that case now when he, when he talks about the Levites in comparison to Abraham and Melchizedek. Listen to what he says. He says, now consider how great this man was to whom even the patriarch Abraham gave a tenth of his spoils. You guys think Abraham's great. Well, Melchizedek, who happens to be Jesus Christ, is so great that uh, Abraham tied to him. You only tied to God. Even the, even the Levites were, the, who received the tithes under the sacrificial system were, were, were the tithes were supposedly given to God. And indeed, those who are of the sons of Levi who received the priesthood have a commandment to receive the tithes from the people according to the law, that is, from their brethren, though they have come from the loins of Abraham. I mean, here's Abraham. He's one of the greatest men of all times. And, and, uh, and uh, when the Jews gave tithes to the Levites, indirectly they were given tithes to Abraham because these were the descendants of Abraham. That's what he's trying to say here. But Abraham, who's this great man, gave a tithe to Melchizedek. It's not as confusing as it seems, but, but let's go on here. Then he says, but he who, whose genealogy is not derived from, the, from them, from the Levites, and he's speaking of Melchizedek, he's speaking of Jesus Christ, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises, who he gave the promises to. I mean, it was God who gave Abraham the promises. Now, beyond all contradiction, the lesser is blessed by the better. You know what? That's a, there's a lesson to be learned right there. When some religious leader gets up on a platform before 100,000 people and offers blessings to those people, that's nothing more than hot air. I can't bless you. Nobody can bless you but God. Now, I can invoke a blessing for you. I can pray that God will bless you, but I can throw all sorts of stuff all over you, and that's not going to bless you. That's not going to bless you. Only God can bless you, and that's why I'm a little hesitant when people say, God bless you, I say, bless you too, you know. But, but really, I'm hesitant to ever talk about blessing somebody. All I can do is lead you to the blesser, to Jesus Christ. He's the one who imparts blessings. Here, here in, now this is interesting because we know that from this text, the temple worship was still taking place, so the temple still existed. So we know this is sometime before 70 A.D. because the temple was destroyed in 70 A.D., but he says, here and now, mortal man, the Levites, received tithes. But there he, Melchizedek, received them from Abraham, of whom it is witnessed that he lives. He still lives. He's talking about Jesus Christ. Even Levi, who receives tithes, said through Abraham, so does, even Levi, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, so to speak, because they're the descendants of Abraham. For he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. All right, now, 
You understand what he's trying to say there? He's trying to say that these Levites are not as great as Abraham. And yet Abraham gave a tithe to Melchizedek. And so this Melchizedek, I mean to a Jew, if you start saying somebody's greater than Abraham or somebody's greater than Moses, man, they better be pretty great. And he was and is, he was and is infinitely greater than uh, Abraham. Now, here's what I want you to see as we finish this out. Melchizedek ministered to Abraham before the law. Some 500 years before Moses gave the law. Abraham was under a very similar dispensation to what we're under, a dispensation of faith. He lived by faith. I mean, Abraham is the father of faith. And he's really our example as to how we're to live. And that's why I use the example of tithing, because tithing for us should be like it was for Abraham. We don't do it as an obligation. We do it out of gratitude. All right, now 500 years after Abraham leaves the scene, Moses gives the Jews the law, and he gives them the sacrificial system. And they were under that system until Jesus said it is finished on the cross. Now, the law is still in effect. If you're not saved, you're still under law. So the dispensation of law, to some degree, is running right alongside the dispensation of grace that you and I, who are born again, are under. Because the world is condemned by the law just like it was in the days of Moses. All right, now. Why did God give the dispensation of the law? I tell you, you got a real clue to it in the book of Exodus when they were given the law. You remember what they said? I quote this all the time. They said, all these things we will do. That was a mistake. They could have ended this mess, just like Adam and Eve could have ended it all by not eating the fruit. They could have ended all the mess that they went through by saying, Lord, look at this law, we can't ever keep this. This standard's way too high for us. But you know, that's been the problem with mankind throughout history. Most people think they're pretty good people. In God's eyes, they are wicked and depraved. The heart is desperately wicked. Look, if you're here today and you're not born again, you're at enmity with God. You are alienated from God because of your sins, and it's just one sin that alienates you. So the law can never save you. It only can condemn you. And so God gave the law to show us that we can't keep the law. That's why we had the dispensation of the law. And he gave the sacrificial system so that when you didn't keep the law and you failed to keep the law, there was a covering for your sin. But by the time the author of Hebrews is writing this book, I mean, the Jews should have realized that the law and the sacrificial system was never going to make them perfect. There was no way it was going to make them, them perfect. The standard was too high and their failures were too great. There was no way they, the law was ever going to make them perfect. I mean, all you've got to do is go get in part of a do- denomination where they try to keep the law, and you'll find out real quick you can't keep the law. Now, like I said on Wednesday night, there's a lot of denominations that, that, are, that say you're under law, and they lower the bar, the standard of the law where you can hop over it, but man, that standard is infinitely greater than you are. If you are angry with your brother, if you want to strangle a principal because of their, what they're trying to tell you, that is murder. 
I actually murdered that principal and Nathan in that room. I am a violent man. But the standard's way too high. I can't keep the standard. And they, realized, they had to realize at this point there wasn't enough blood of bulls and goats that would, to go around for, to pay for their sin. And so they needed an infinite sacrifice that could cover an infinite amount of sins. They needed more than the human priest. They needed God to be their priest and God to die for their sins. Let's finish up. I just want to preview one verse from, from next week because it kind of it'll transition us into next week's passage. Look at verse number 11. Therefore, if perfection came through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law. They were under law. They were in the dispensational law. What further need was there? I mean, if you could get perfect through the law and through the sacrificial system, what further need was there that any other priest should rise according to the order of Melchizedek? Look, you didn't need it, Jesus Christ. I mean, Melchizedek came and Abraham was under faith. He was the angel of the Lord. He was the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. And, and that's the relationship that Abraham had. And he was, he was saved by faith. He, was, he was, went to paradise by faith, went to heaven by faith. I mean, so he lived under faith. But then the law was given. And if, and if the law could perfect you, what need was there for someone else according to the order of Melchizedek to come along? Well, the law could not perfect you. It cannot perfect anyone. Who gets to heaven? Who gets to heaven? Perfect people. Absolutely perfect people. You cannot take one sin with you to heaven. You've got to be perfect. And the law can't do that. The sacrificial system can't do that. Only Jesus Christ can do that through faith. And so the Son of God appeared, who appeared to be like Melchizedek, came on the scene. Amen. There you go. And he took on flesh at Bethlehem. And he became a man and he grew up. Well, let me go back a little bit. He got a genealogy at that point. The genealogy from the line of David. But he was virgin born. That means he was knitted together in the womb by none other than God himself. And he was given a name, a name by the angels that Mary was told to give him. And what was his name? Jehovah is salvation. Yeshua, Jesus, that was his name. Jehovah saves. And he grew up to die on a cross. Amen. For our sins. And they put him in the grave. But on Sunday, he rose from that grave. And you know what he did? When the he said it is finished, that veil was torn in two. And the very presence, the very house of God was opened up for us to live in his presence. And when he ascended to heaven, guess who he became again? Melchizedek. 
the king of righteousness, the king of peace, the king of my righteousness, and the king of my peace, king of kings and lord of lords. Amen. We got to do this more often. And you know what he does in heaven now? You know what he lives to be in heaven now? Your personal advocate. To take up every cause you have. He's there to do that. Greater than any lawyer. Greater than any parent. Greater than any doctor. Greater than anyone. He's our great personal advocate. And we can live with him. We're anchored with him forever in the holiest of holies. What a deal, huh? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we just thank you for just what you've done for us through Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you for the knowledge of who he is that's given to us through your word. Lord, not knowledge so we can become great theologians, Lord, but knowledge so we can learn to live in your presence, to understand just what you've done for us and what you're going to do for us and what you're doing for us now. Or that you're our advocate in every situation we face, against every adversary we face. We know that we can trust you for our life and our salvation because you're the king of peace and you're the king of righteousness. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. We're going to do the Lord's Supper, so hang tight.
like Abraham, all of us who believe in Jesus Christ are children of faith. By faith, we make Jesus Christ our great high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. By his broken body and his shed blood, he has saved us and he's become our personal advocate in every situation that we face. That means he's taken care of our sin because he's the king of righteousness and the king of peace. He's given us peace with God. He's removed the law that was against us and he's nailed it to the cross. He's given us his life, his life eternal so that we can be anchored with him in the very presence of God in the holiest of holies forever. If that doesn't make you grateful, I don't know what will. Paul said, For I received from the Lord that which I delivered from you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Let's stand and close in the song.